Good evening, everybody. We're going to begin tonight studying the general epistles. I decided to go look into the general epistles before we get to the the uh, epistles of Paul. So we're going to be looking at at the general epistles. We're looking at James this evening because that was the earliest of the general epistles that was written. So we'll begin now with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for all of the writers of the Bible who were inspired by your Holy Spirit and faithfully carried out the, the mission that you gave them. We're so thankful that you worked through them and delivered their important message to us, an important message from you. How astounding it is that you as the creator of the universe have chosen to communicate with us and to make yourself known to us and that you and your mercy and kindness have shown us the way to eternal life. We ask tonight that you will help us to understand the book of James as we look into these matters of, of justification and other matters. We ask that you will be with us and guide our study. In Jesus' name, amen. So this evening, we're going to be looking at James, which is all about Jesus Christ, our pattern. James knew Jesus Christ very well because he was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up with him. James, Jesus Christ, our pattern. The author of this book is identified as James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament mentions several people named James, but the general consensus is that this work was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, who by Acts 15 was in charge of the church in Jerusalem. In English, we say James. The Greek is Jacobus. The Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Jacob or Yaakov in Hebrew. So it's um, Jacobus, the, um, the name in Greek, which is the same as Jacob or Yaakov. So that first letter is a capital I. Um, So the question, the first question that we have, we encounter is which James? There are many Jameses in the New Testament. So which James was it? Well, there was James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, Russell John, who was martyred about AD 44 before the book of James was written. So he could have been the author if he had lived that long, but uh, he didn't. He was, he was martyred before uh, the book of James was written. So it wasn't that James. Another James is the, James, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, he was one of the 12 disciples, but he was not prominent enough to write an encyclical letter. And all we mean by an encyclical letter is a letter which has a, a, a broad distribution, a, a wide audience, as opposed to uh, 
a letter, an epistle, which is sent to a particular church, a church in a particular city, or to a particular individual. It's sent to a, a wider audience. The epistles of Paul are sent to churches, like the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, and so on, or to individuals like Titus or Timothy. But the general epistles are all addressed to just uh, Christians in general. There's also James the Less, thought to be the some, thought by some to be the same as person as James the son of Alphaeus. So these Jameses can get very confusing. And then there's James the father of Judas. We're not talking about Judas Iscariot here. There was another disciple named Judas. So this James was not one of the twelve disciples. He was the father of one of the apostles one of the disciples, apostles. But he was not prominent enough either to, to write an encyclical letter because he wasn't even a disciple. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, is in all likelihood the author of the book of James, the epistle of James. The half-brother of Jesus and the brother of Jude. We'll look at his book later on. James was a, an unbeliever before Jesus' resurrection. We read about this in, in the Gospel of John, where uh, his brothers were kind of taunting him. Well, why don't you just go down to the down to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles and show yourself if you're really the Messiah? So J James was an unbeliever at that time, but Christ appeared to him after his resurrection, and James was converted. We read about that in First Corinthians 15. Later, he received a visit from Paul. We read about that in Galatians. Uh, he was called uh, by Paul the Lord's brother. He was a pillar in the Jerusalem church. James was. Uh, he, re he resided at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. He agreed with Paul on justification, but he urged Paul, him, Paul, to respect the Jewish law. Peter referred to him with deference, referred to James with deference. Hence, he is the only James in the New Testament who is prominent enough to write a general epistle. An interesting story about James, there's a tradition that he had camel knees. The story goes like this. James, the brother of the Lord, has been called the just by all from the time of our Savior till the present day. For there were many who bore the name of James. So they called him James the Just to distinguish him from all the other Jameses. And he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple and was often found on his knees begging forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard or calloused like those of a camel. So that is a story about why James was thought to have camel knees, calloused knees. Because James did not mention the destruction of Jerusalem and used the Greek term that translates to synagogue instead of church, it's believed that the book of James is one of the earliest books in the New Testament, dated between 44 and 50 AD, within 15 years or so of Jesus' resurrection. I'll probably show you this uh, many times in the next 
several weeks. But I just wanted to show you uh, the order of the books of the New Testament chronologically, in the order that they were written, probably. These dates are estimates or averages. I look at several different sources, and of course, they don't all agree exactly. Uh, but I just I took kind of an average, kind of a, a synopsis of the of the dates that various scholars give. But in all likelihood, James, the, the Epistle of James, was the first New Testament book to be written uh, within 15 years or so of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And I, I mentioned before that there's some debate about whether that was AD 30 or AD 33 that Christ died and rose. And then uh, the first of Paul's epistles was probably Galatians and so on. Uh, you see the order here and the approximate years that the books were written. You might be surprised to, to know that the Gospels weren't written until after the early epistles were written. Now, the events, of course, in the gospel accounts were took place before the epistles were written, but they weren't written down as gospels. They weren't the gospels weren't starting to be written down until until uh, after the earliest epistles were written down. And so we, it is thought today that that Mark was probably the first to write. Some some dispute that and think Matthew was the first, but. This is the, the general order of the books. And you can see the other books of the New Testament. Then we, in the 60s, we start getting Luke and Acts and more epistles in there, uh, both the Paul's epistles and general epistles. And then uh, you see Jude there, the other brother of Jesus who wrote in the New Testament. And of course, John was the, the last surviving apostle. So he didn't write his gospel until uh, the late 80s, early 90s AD. So that just gives you a, an indication of the order of the books of the New Testament, the order in which they were written, and why I chose to, in looking at the general epistles to begin with he with James because it was probably the first that was written. The book of James is distinct from most of the other New Testament epistles because of its unmistakably Jewish nature. It's addressed to the 12 tribes and emphasizing faith in action. True Christianity is characterized by good deeds and a faith that works. Genuine faith, James argued, must and will be accompanied by a consistent lifestyle. It involves putting your faith where your hands and feet are. Some people argue that there's a contradiction between James' emphasis on works and Paul's emphasis on faith. And I'll talk more about that later on when we look at the alleged discrepancies and, and contradictions in the book of James. But we must keep in mind that each author had a very different audience. James wrote to counter those who said that a Christian's conduct is irrelevant to salvation. And Paul was addressing legalists who said you needed works in order to be saved. 
So they're addressing two different, two different groups. James was, was written quite early in, in church history, before some of the, the doctrinal disputes that came up later and, and Paul had to address. So at the time that, that James wrote, the big issues in, in the early church had to do with how Christians should treat one another, how Christians should live. And so that is, that is what James focused on. The, the doctrinal issues really hadn't uh, manifested themselves yet. James is a, is a difficult uh, book to, to outline because it, it's sort of like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. It deals with many unrelated issues, so it's, it's hard to, uh, to outline it. So I just have listed here uh, the five chapters of James and, and the main topic of each chapter. In the first chapter, it tells us that mature Christians are patient in trials. In the second chapter, mature Christians practice the truth. They don't just believe the truth, they actually practice, they actually do something as a result of it. Uh, chapter three, mature Christians control the tongue. There are many analogies in that third chapter that James gives us. Mature Christians are poor in spirit, chapter four. And chapter five, mature Christians persevere in trials. The gospel, although Jesus is only mentioned a couple of times in the book of James, only about twice, I think, he is at the center of everything James is driving toward. Because we have such a great salvation through Jesus, we have access to what we need to live out our faith, the wisdom of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, James wrote, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is especially true when we are going through hardship, and the book of James certainly doesn't shy away from talking about that. In a trial, we tend to pray for deliverance rather than wisdom. For the mature Christian, however, hardship ought to be embraced as an opportunity to learn, grow, and move forward in one's walk with God. Instead of asking, Lord, how can I get out of this? Develop an attitude that says, Lord, what can I get out of this? Having faith doesn't mean that you always understand what God is doing or allowing in your life, but it does mean having confidence in his ability and then obeying whatever he tells you to do. Look at what Jesus did in his darkest hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. He first prayed for deliverance, then he prayed for God's will to be done no matter what. Then he went and did what was necessary. And we can follow that example. In the history, well, James had an unusual life. Growing up in the home of Joseph and Mary and living with his older half-brother, Jesus, must have been quite an experience. James had the rare opportunity to watch Jesus in all sorts of life situations. And in the end, he humbled himself and declared that he was Jesus' bondservant. Initially, Jesus' brothers, including James, didn't believe in him. I mentioned before how they sort of mocked him about going to the Feast of Tabernacles to Sukkot in Jerusalem. But after the resurrection, 
James' unbelief turned to unwavering belief. James became a leader in the early church and headed up the Jerusalem Council in AD 50. He was executed for his faith in AD 62. The travel text, the implications and applications, things that we can learn and do from the book of James. The first one is embrace our trials. Two main factors drive Christian maturity, trials and temptations. We don't like either. We don't like either one, but we need both. The great paradox being that patience helps you endure trials, but is also produced by trials. Growth as a believer cannot be achieved while being content to stay in safe waters. Waters that are always still uh, have, uh, usually have sharp rocks at the bottom. But where the waves are pounding against the shore, it smooths off the rocks and turns them into something beautiful. And that's what happens to us too. Those trials that beat against us make us into something beautiful that God can use. Second one, be uh, God's conduit of love and blessing. James reminded us to fulfill the royal law of scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Because God has poured his love and his spirit into our hearts through Jesus Christ, no one in our circle of influence should be starved for love, care, or consideration. The next one is loose lips and sink ships. Of course, you probably know that James had quite a bit to say about the tongue. Gossip and careless speech can sink not just individual brothers and sisters, but entire churches. That's why James said mature Christians will control their tongue. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And we all hope that, that includes us, those who make peace. Growth hinges on practice. Being born again is just the beginning of your spiritual life. It has little to do with actual age, but it is an ongoing process. Becoming mature in your faith requires patience, perseverance, and plenty of growing pains. James said that spiritual growth happens when you live what you believe, acting on the word of God as you press on and keep walking in faith. Looking at the nature of the book of James, what it's like, what the characteristics of it are, we find that there is a flavor of pastoral admonition that pervades this letter. Imperative verbs occur with greater frequency in James than in any other New Testament book. James rebukes and exhorts his readers, and any theology that is taught comes only in conjunction with this overriding purpose. I remember that when I was in seminary, uh, the question was asked, what is the difference between teaching and preaching? Well, with teaching, a person is, is giving information, but with preaching, there's an extra element. Not only is the person giving information, conveying information, 
but also there is an oughtness to preaching. In other words, what we ought to do is told to us in, in preaching, in effective preaching. We are told, well, this is what the text says and this is what it means, but what are we to do with it? And that's why we have implications and applications. How do we take that information and apply it in our lives? Well, there's a lot of that in the book of James, imperative verbs. Do this, do this, don't do that, do this rather than that. There are a lot of, a lot of instructions given to us in the book of James. James is the least doctrinal and most practical book in the New Testament. And I mentioned before why that is, because at the time that James wrote, the, the major controversies within the church had to do with Christian living, how Christians are to treat one another. The great doctrinal issues that Paul dealt with that came along later. So James is a manual of Christian conduct that assumes a foundation of faith. You can't begin to do the things that James instructs you to do unless you have that firm foundation of faith. James stressed orthopraxy, in other words, sound deeds, and not just orthodoxy, sound doctrine. We need to have sound doctrine, of course, but that should motivate us to do sound deeds. James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And I mentioned before, that's one of the things that makes uh, James a difficult book to, to outline because it covers so many different topics, so many different unrelated topics, just like the book of Proverbs does. James contains numerous allusions to sayings of Jesus recorded in the Gospels, especially material associated with the Sermon on the Mount. James, as a person who grew up with Jesus, knew how he thought, knew the, the illustrations that he used. So James speaks about being humble, just like Jesus did. He speaks about judging, just like Jesus did, and swearing, just like Jesus did. The contrast in James 1.22 between the hearers and the doers of the word calls the parable of the wise person that, that Jesus gave, who builds on a, on a solid foundation by hearing and doing the words of Jesus. Person who, by hearing, but failing to do his words. So James was familiar with that concept. The topics that are covered in James, first of all, rejoice in trials in chapter one, verses two and four. Believingly ask God for wisdom, one, five through eight. Do not desire wealth in chapter one, verses nine to 11. Distinguish between trials, which come from God, and temptations, which come from human lusts, where God gives only good gifts. Chapter one, verses 12 through 18. And then of course, as we know quite well, be doers of the word in speech and action not mere hearers, in chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. 
Do not show partiality towards the rich, but love all equally and as yourselves. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. As in the Old Testament, the emphasis in the rich lies as much on their wicked persecution of the righteous as on their wealth. Just as the poor often means pious and persecuted, as well as poverty stricken. So it's not wrong to have wealth, to have riches, but don't use your status as a way to persecute and, and uh, harass other people. Those who are less fortunate, use, use your wealth as a way to help them. Demonstrate the genuineness of your faith by good works. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. And so that is something that, that James spends quite a, deal, quite a bit of time about. Is talking about the genuineness, genuineness of our faith demonstrated by good works. Exhibit the characteristics of genuine wisdom required of Christian teachers. Control of the tongue, that is, of, of its speech. Meekness, which avoids quarrelsomeness. And purity, which avoids worldliness. And we read about that in chapter 3, verses 1, through all the way through uh, chapter 4, verse, verse 10. Do not slander one another. Verse, uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Do not plan overconfidently by failing to take into account God's will and the possibility of death. You're probably familiar with that passage about the person who, who says, well, I'm going to go to this place and I'm going to make lots of money and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Well, it's, it's fine to plan, but we need to take into account the fact that God's plans always override ours. Be patient until Jesus returns, for then God will punish your rich and powerful persecutors. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Do not use oaths, but speak straightforwardly and honestly. Chapter 5, verse 12. Share your concerns and joys with one another. In particular, let the elders of the church believingly pray for the healing of the sick as they anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. If a sick person has sinned and confesses, healing will demonstrate that God has forgiven. Now we have to be very careful here because the reverse, that sickness is always a direct chastisement for sin, and that failure to recover always implies unforgiveness by God, does not logically follow. Sometimes sickness is a result of a sinful life. And when the person repents and God heals them, uh, that is an indication that God has forgiven them. But don't make the mistake of thinking that if someone has a sickness or that someone isn't healed, that means that they are sinful. That is not necessarily the case. Olive oil was, was a common household remedy in, in the first century. A good Samaritan, for example, 
poured oil and wine on the wounds of a waylaid traveler. So James may have its uh, may have its, its medicinal properties in mind when he, when he talked about anointing, as though to say, treat with medicine and, and pray for recovery. Now, there are a couple of things in this fifth chapter of James that Roman Catholics have, have misunderstood and, and taken in a, in a totally different direction that they were not intended to be taken. The command to anoint with oil underlies the Roman Catholic sacrament of extreme unction, in which a priest anoints the eyes, ears, nostrils, hands, and feet of a person about to die as a medium of forgiveness. If the person cannot consciously engage in confession to receive priestly absolution. So if the person is unconscious or in a coma and they're about to die, uh, the priest gives them this extreme unction. Well, that's not at all what, what James is talking about. James speaks of elders, not priests, of course, nor does he speak of people already in the throes of death. James talks about is if any is sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. Well, you can't call for the elders of the church if we are already in a coma, right? So uh, I don't think that this passage applies at all to what the Roman Catholics claim that it does. Similarly, the command confess your sins to one another is a Roman Catholic proof text for oracular confession, auricular confession. Auricular simply means pertaining to the ear. So in other words, you don't uh, write your confession down and send it to the priest. You, he hears your confession. That's all they mean by auricular confession. But the Catholics have gotten this wrong too. James writes to each other. So the parishioners in the Roman Catholic Church go to the priest and confess their sins but the priest never confesses his sins to them. So this doesn't seem to apply either because James said to each other. And this thing about confessing their sins to one another, it may refer to resolving differences among Christians rather than to exposing one's private sins either to a clergyman or to the whole church. Keep fellow professing Christians from apostatizing and incurring eternal judgment. In chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, it talks about intervening and helping a brother or sister when we see them going astray. The sinners who are to be turned from the error of their ways are fellow Christians who are whose strain tends toward apostasy. The death of their soul means eternal death should they apostatize. And covering a multitude of sins means God's forgiveness of strayers' sins when others have induced them to repent. All of this, of course, must be understood within the context of God's sovereignty. If people do apostatize and suffer eternal judgment, it's because they were never really saved in the first place. As John, 1 John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. So that is describing the people who actually do 
apostatize and turn from the faith. Those who are truly Christians will heed the warnings and turn from their sin. Those who are truly Christians, those who are truly saved, will not lose their salvation. Okay, now let's take a look at some of the alleged discrepancies and contradictions that are found in the book of James. The first one that comes up is, does God tempt? The Bible says that God tempted Abraham. At least that's what it says in the, in the King James Version. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray to God, do not lead us into temptation. How then can James say of God, nor does he himself tempt anyone? So James says very clearly that God doesn't tempt anyone. But in, in the King James Version, at least, it says that in Genesis that God did tempt Abraham. Well, that translation of tempted in, in the King James is an unfortunate translation. God did not tempt Abraham or anyone to sin. Rather, he tested Abraham to see if he would sin or be faithful to him. God allows Satan to tempt us. We see that in Matthew as well as in James. And then we see it in 1 Peter. But James is correct in saying, never does God himself tempt anyone. God cannot be tempted to sin by sin since he is absolutely and unchangeably perfect. Nor can he tempt anyone else to sin. When we sinful human beings are tempted, it is because we allow ourselves to be drawn away by our own lustful desires. We read about that in, in James, in verses 14 through 15 there. The source of temptation comes from within and not from without. It comes from sinful man and not from a sinless God. While God does not and cannot actually tempt anyone to sin, he can and does allow us to be tempted by Satan and our own lustful desires. Of course, his purpose in permitting, but not producing or promoting, evil is to make us more perfect. God allowed Satan to tempt Job so that Job could say, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. It's not as if uh, God doesn't know how we will respond. Of course he does. He's sovereign and he, and he knows how we will respond. But when we are tested by temptations that come upon us through our own weaknesses, our own lusts, God demonstrates to us that he is in control of our lives and that he will help us to change and grow. God allowed evil to befall Joseph at the hands of his brothers. But in the end, Joseph was able to say to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Now the big question, the big issue that comes up in the book of James is justification by faith or works. Paul clearly teaches that we are justified by faith and not by works. We read about that uh, in many places in Paul's epistles, but most notably here in 
in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He declared, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. So all through the epistles of Paul, we read about this. That we are saved by grace through faith, not, not of ourselves. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And many of you probably have that those verses in Ephesians 2 memorized. But James seems to flatly contradict this by declaring, A man is justified by works, and not by faith only. James 2.24 For faith without works is dead, verse 26. Indeed, while Paul said Abraham was justified by faith, in Romans 4, James declares, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Are these not flatly contradictory? James and Paul would be contradicting each other if they were speaking about the same thing, but there are many indications they are not. Paul is speaking about justification before God, while James is talking about justification before humans. This is indicated by the fact that James stressed that we should show our faith. Well, we don't have to show God our faith. He already knows whether or not we have faith. We show our faith to other human beings. Humans need outward evidence because they cannot see into the heart. James is not contradicting Paul, who writes of justification by faith before God, who does not need outward evidence because he can see into the heart. Faith must be something that can be seen by others in works. Further, James acknowledged that Abraham was justified before God by faith, not works, when he said Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. James said that, not Paul. That Abraham just believed God, and that was accounted to him for righteousness before he had done anything. When he, James, says that Abraham was justified by works, he is speaking of what Abraham did that could be seen by people, namely offering his son Isaac on the altar. So the works that Abraham did were the result of his believing. Further, while Paul is stressing the root of justification, faith, James is stressing the fruit of justification, works. So what we do as a result of our faith. But each man acknowledges both, both the fact that we have faith and the fact that we need to work, do works, in response to that faith that God has given us. Immediately after affirming that we are saved by grace through faith, in Ephesians 2, Paul quickly adds, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul isn't saying that, well, we're saved by faith, so we don't need to concern ourselves with good works. 
Paul stresses the importance of that result in our lives, of walking the walk and not just talking the talk. Likewise, right after declaring that it is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, in Titus 3.5, Paul urges that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. So once again, Paul and James do not disagree about the good works that we do as a result of our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The relation between Paul and James can be summarized this way. So I've, I've drawn up a little chart here, uh, contrasting the different emphases of, of Paul and James. Paul is talking about justification before God, whereas James is addressing justification before humans. Paul stresses the root of salvation. By grace are you saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The root of our justification. James is talking about the fruit of our justification, the result of our justification. Paul talks about justification by faith. James stresses justification for works. Paul talks about faith as producer of works. James talks about works as the proof of faith. So they are, they each has different emphases, but they're talking about the same faith and the same works. The faith that brings salvation and the works that result from that salvation. Another thing that comes up in, in the book of James is the drought that is mentioned back in the Old Testament in the time of Elijah. Both here in James and in Luke 4.25 it speaks of a three and one half year drought in the days of Elijah. But if you go back to the Old Testament and read about this in 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1 and also in chapter 18 verse 1 it refers to the drought lasting three years. So which is it? Three or three and a half? There are three possible solutions here. The three years may simply be a round number. So it was about three years. So it was three and a half. Or the third year in, in First Kings may be reckoned from the time of Elijah's stay with the widow of Zarephath, not the full time of the drought. So maybe the drought was three and a half years, but it, the three years is beginning with, with Elijah's stay with the widow of Zarephath six months into the drought. And finally, it is possible that the drought began six months before the famine did, making both passages precise, but referring to two different things. So in other words, the drought may have lasted three and a half years, but the famine part didn't really kick in until uh, six years into the drought. So there really is no uh, uh, insoluble contradiction between this three years or three and a half years. I will close with um, some information about the martyrdom of James from, from church history. Uh, this comes from Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews. And so he, Ananus, the high priest at that time, 
convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. So there were others along with James, but James was certainly the most prominent one. He accused them, he, meaning this high priest, Evanus, he accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. Once again, that's from Josephus. And here is Eusebius in his church history from about the, the fourth century, I believe. Uh, he gives us some further details about the martyrdom of James. So they went up and threw down from the pinnacle of the temple, is where they threw them him down from, the just man and said to each other, the, the, the pinnacle of the temple, by the way, is thought to be the southeast corner of the Temple Mount because that is the, the furthest drop, the highest drop uh, down into the Kidron Valley. So it's thought that the pinnacle of the temple uh, was that southeast corner of the Temple Mount. You might remember that also from the, the temptation of Christ in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. That was one of the things that Satan urged Jesus to do was jump off the pinnacle of the temple, that, that southeast corner of the Temple Mount. So they, the people said to each other, let us stone James the Just. I remember he's called James the Just. Uh, that was a, the name that was given him to distinguish him from all of the other Jameses. And they began to stone him, for he was not killed by the fall. When they pushed him off the, the pinnacle of the temple, he was not killed instantly. He probably had many broken bones and internal injuries, but he wasn't dead yet. And one of them, who was a laundryman, took the club with which he beat out clothes and struck the just man on the head, and thus he suffered martyrdom. So we, we can be very thankful that those faithful Christians in the first century and down through the centuries have remained faithful and have remained committed to sharing that message with us and for providing us with examples of faith. I'll close now with a word of prayer and then we'll have comments and questions. Father in heaven, we do thank you for James the Just. And just as you wrought a great change in his life, at first being reluctant to accept the truth that his brother, his half-brother was, was teaching. But after he saw Jesus killed and resurrected from the dead, he could no longer deny that Jesus was indeed the Savior of mankind that you were working through. And Jesus commi James committed himself tirelessly to working on his behalf, spreading the message, spreading the glorious truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus was sent to reconcile mankind. We thank you for these things, and we ask that you help us to Go out in boldness, understanding that your precious truths can be reconciled 
even when there are apparent contradictions and apparent discrepancies, that it's all your inspired word working to help us, working to instruct us, working to strengthen us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.